like all of a sudden the world is just overflowing with like so much. There is so much if you sort of stop thinking about yourself, I think, um, which is hard to do. <laughs> and, and there are times to think about yourself, but if we can kind of shift our perspective to like the smallness of ourselves and the bigness of, of others, I think like can really be almost like overwhelming with abundance, overflowing. You're listening to the Wise Women Podcast, Season 4, Episode 133. I'm your host, Alicia Wilfert, founder of Yoke and Abundance, leadership coaching for entrepreneurs, creatives, and seekers. This podcast is designed to inspire by introducing you to creatives living abundantly. In today's episode, I'm sharing my conversation with Rebecca Modrak and Jamie Vanderbrock on their newly released book, Radical Humility. Welcome back, everyone. I am so excited to share this week's interview with Rebecca Modrak, who is a writer and interventionist artist whose works resist consumer culture, and Jamie Vanderbrock, who is a librarian for art and design at the University of Michigan. They have recently released a book called Radical Humility, Essays on Ordinary Acts, which explores what humility means and why it matters in an age of golden escalators and billionaire entrepreneurs. This book of essays explores how the cultivation of humility empowers us to see success and failure, to fight against injustice, to stretch beyond our usual ways of thinking, and to foster a culture of listening in an age of digital shouting. With contributions, from renowned scholars as well as psychologists, artists, and many others, Radical Humility offers guidance. I can't wait to share this interview with you after a word from our sponsor. Calling all purpose-driven female entrepreneurs with stories to share with this world, I want you to meet my friend Abby Gibb, who also happens to be an Emmy award-winning journalist turned business and media mentor. She's helped women like you build million-dollar businesses around your personal story, become best-selling authors, and land TED Talks in months. She's currently offering a special for my community on her number one media marketing course, the Media Visibility Accelerator a six-module course for purpose-driven entrepreneurs who want to scale their business to 25K per month and scale their message into a global movement. This is the program your soul craves and your bank account deserves. Check out the link in today's show notes. Now, on to today's show. Rebecca and Jamie, it is such a pleasure and an honor to have you on the Yoke and Abundance podcast. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. The two of you have just released a book, Radical Humility, Essays on Ordinary Acts. And I am holding it here. I'm so excited about this book. And before we launch into that, I would love for each of you to share a little bit about who you are and what is keeping you full of purpose these days? Jamie, can we start with you? Sure. Um, so I'm Jamie Vanderbrook. I'm an art librarian at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And um, like a lot of people, I think that my family is keeping me full of 
purpose right now. I think with um, everything that's happened in the last year, sort of refocused a lot of people's priorities. So while work is really important to me and I get a lot of joy and um, I feel very lucky to do the job that I do, um, I spend so much more time with my family than I used to. And I'm really grateful for that. And watching my, I have a five-year-old watching her grow into a person and kind of like being part of shaping that is a bigger part of my life than it was before everything changed a little over a year ago. So that's kind of where I'm at. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. And Rebecca, how about you? Um, hi, I'm Rebecca Modrak, and I'm a faculty member in the Stamp School of Art and Design at the University of Michigan. I'm an artist, and um, I would say that I think a lot in the last few years, but especially now about um, some inequities that I see both within the university, within the, my community nationally, and um, uh, sort of like expressions of power that are being used sort of forcefully and um, maybe without concern for others. And that gives me a lot of purpose trying to figure out how to, how to resist that or at least to expose it in some ways. Mm, thank you so much. All right, now I have to know, where did the seed of an idea come from for this book? How did it come into being? Um, so I, let's see, I, I would say maybe my 15th year of teaching here at the University of Michigan and the culture, I started to notice some changes in the culture. There was more emphasis on presentation of self, of um, sort of the you know, things that maybe like are less substantive, but more status-based, like, you know, caring more about like the title of your talk at a conference rather than what you had learned through the talk itself or the research that you had done leading up to the talk. We were having boaster meetings suddenly where we were encouraged to get together with like another school and faculty from that school. And we would each have a minute to describe how important we, we were. And I, and I was being told um, by some administrators, like, I mean, we all were how, you know, how are you visible? And so there's, there was this increasing emphasis on visibility and not on like substance or meaning of our work or the value of our work, the content of our work, but on, you know, like how we were sort of promoting ourselves and our work. And that was of concern to me. Um, it was a big shift from where I think we were before, where the emphasis was really on content and discovery. And at the same time, I sort of saw some failures, extreme failures at the university in terms of like process and bias. And, and when I tried to report those, you know, there just were doors shut like constantly. Nobody wanted to hear about these problems. They really just wanted them to go away. And so um, I was thinking about that. I was sort of disappointed in the culture of the university. And I was also, uh, Donald Trump had started running for presidency. And so I was, you know, aware of like all the boasting and a lot of the, the language that was starting to amp up in national politics. And my, I accepted a residency, an art residency in Nebraska at the time. And so my family drove out there together for a month to spend the month so I could interview people who work with their hands, um, manual laborers, and especially farmers. And when we were in Nebraska, 
it was just a, an amazing culture shift um, in so many ways from Ann Arbor. Um, and it was much more similar to what I had experienced growing up in Pittsburgh. People didn't like lead with like how important they were or um, with the status. They really like deferred. I mean, you wouldn't have learned anything about a person in, in those ways. Talking with them, you only sort of learned that about them from somebody else who, you know, after the person had left, you know, kind of popped their head in and said, by the way, that person's the mayor or by the way, that person's our state senator. But I was also seeing this just in terms of like how people lived. So, you know, in Ann Arbor, you know, like kids show up for camp with their $70 backpacks and, you know, you go into the grocery store nearby and there's just like a lot of like excess, I would say, in terms of like specialty products, like so much sort of emphasis on like what you can buy and, and like, you know, one one restaurant in Ann Arbor has like hand-torn croutons, which we sort of joke about, like aren't all croutons hand-torn? I don't know. But um, so in Nebraska, you know, there's not, there wasn't in the small town we were in, there wasn't this emphasis at all. Like, you know, you went into the grocery store and there was one kind of grape and there was one, three kinds of crackers. And um, it's not what you sort of spent your time thinking about. Um, and so as I was interviewing farmers, they kept, you know, they kept saying to me, you should interview this one farmer in particular. And I asked like, well, what's, what's special about this farmer? Like, what does he know about, you know, agriculture? And, and they said, well, he's really humble. And I was so taken aback by that word. It wasn't a word I had heard very often. And, but it really reflected the culture I was seeing in Nebraska and also that I was really enjoying experiencing and I thought, I want to, I want to like know more about humility. And I want to, I'm so curious to talk with people who think about humility. So um, I reached out to Jamie and to um, a philosopher at the university and to a, a marketing professor who studies pride at the university. And the four of us got together to um, start thinking about humility. Jamie, what intrigued you? Why did you say yes to being a part of this project? Well, I was pretty new in my job at the time. Um, I had gone from being an, a librarian that mostly worked with intro, sort of like entry level, beginning students who are undergrads, they could be majoring in anything, to focusing on the people that Rebecca, the community that she's part of, the Stamp School of Art and Design. So I thought that was sort of like learning what it meant to work with art professionals. <laughs> and so simultaneously, I was also a brand new parent. I had had my daughter. So this was like about five years ago. So my daughter was young and had just entered daycare. And when I signed her up for daycare, they uh, sent me this form I needed to fill out where I like kind of described how I wanted everything to go for her every day when she was there. So like when she napped and what her preferences were and things like that. And at the time that she entered daycare, she was like three months old. So she didn't, preferences is kind of like a stretch, <laughs> you know, I mean, she was clear about her opinions, I guess you could say, but like, it seemed surprising to me that like I was supposed to dictate how one small person among like, I don't know, maybe 20 babies, you know, how are they going to manage like the individual precise preferences of 20 babies in this two room space? So I started to kind of be concerned about like the trajectory that I was setting her on, like putting her out into the world where people are so concerned with like everyone having their own 
perfect individualized situation. I feel like we kind of socializing people to behave that way in our culture. And I started to worry like, well, when will she learn about her community and like how she fits into that? Um, and how she can be, you know, how she can kind of adjust her own expectations and behavior to be part of something bigger. Like it seemed like a bad sign that that she was said heading off in a different direction at three months. So that, that I wasn't really like that conscious of those thoughts. It's not like I was like, you know, thinking about it a lot, but it was kind of in the back of my mind. So when Rebecca approached me, you know, certainly it was like not um, something that I was expecting to be thinking about when it comes to like working with artists and designers, both students and faculty. But at the same time, I realized that like I had actually been thinking, I guess, kind of like Rebecca a lot about it. Like it, it just was like there. And, and I think that now that we have this book coming out, almost everyone we encounter is in a similar place where like they, it's not like they think about humility and name it, but it's like, oh, like I, I am witnessing the opposite of it a lot. And I have some reactions or thoughts to that. And so maybe I also want to think about this or talk about this. So like my own feelings at the time that she approached me were maybe sort of similar to when people encounter the book now. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I have to say, um, Rebecca, when I was reading your essay and a lot of what you just outlined for us, the, the talking about the, like the boasting sessions and, you know, I'm an entrepreneur and, um, I'm a bootstrapping entrepreneur, which means that there is a lot of trying to put yourself out there and, and I'm an introvert and like, I don't, I have to put myself out there. So I do it. And I don't love it. Um, and I, I've been trying for the past like five or six years to land a TEDx talk, right? And um, one of the things that really disgusts me about the application is that before they even ask you what your idea is, they want to know what social media platforms you're on so mm -hmm. that they can go check the numbers and how engaged your audience is. And that just... That's all I could think of when I was reading your, and yes, I still want to land a TEDx talk, but I'm slightly disgusted. It's because it isn't just about the idea you have or how well you can teach or convey that idea. It's about, do you have an audience? Have you developed that? How well can you boast about yourself in the process? And so I could really relate to what you had written about in that because there's so many opportunities as a new entrepreneur where people don't want anything to do with you until you've had your name in the paper or a public magazine or, you know, so it's a weird chicken or the egg thing. Yeah. And that seems really contradictory, right? Because it, TEDx has the opportunity to really, you know, make sure people know about voices that aren't being heard. And so, you know, if they're only part of this cycle that's perpetuating, you know, and, and you know, rebroadcasting the voices that are already, you know, have a big audience, it seems a waste of their platform. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. But they want to know that you're going to be able to help promote those TEDx talks. It was really similar when we started. Well, we had this colloquium, which was like an invited conference basically with a small group of people but you know how can you have all these ideas and then not figure out how to share them more broadly and then they also were ideas that like I think would be interesting to anyone they weren't like very specific to a certain discipline or something 
But when we started trying to figure out how to put it out into the world, we encountered a really similar situation, like very similar resistance, the same kind of like, how will we partner with this, this project? And then like that project is going to have social media that will then, you know, kind of like amplify it versus like, is it a good idea? <laughs> you know, the people need to hear, or think, or talk about this. This is like definitely not the first question. The first question is, do you already have a developed audience? Like, how can you demonstrate that? Um, which, you know, when you first think about it, it's that's not necessarily a bad question, I guess. Like, I, it makes sense to me that there's limited ability to promote anything or people people are sort of paying attention to what they're paying, paying attention to. But if you really start to think about the impact of always making all of your decisions like that, you can really see how it's like this like echo chamber of like sameness. That's yeah. exactly the word that was in my head. Yeah. Yeah. We would be, we, it would be suggested to us that we get more celebrities on board to talk about humility, which was really <laughs> funny. And, um, you know, for us, the really, the value of the book and the, the stories that we were hearing were that they were coming from very real lived lives. So, you know, Kevin M who is, um, was working at a tech startup and, um, got laid off from his job, you know, sent out 150 applications was sitting in a coffee shop one day working on his CV, you know, depressed about not having found a job and walked across the street to a restaurant and handed in his CV to them and got hired on the spot, like working, you know, lowest rung in the kitchen you know, you know, like prepping food for the cooks and ended up like loving his job so much because, you know, he, as he describes in the essay, everyone is really direct in the kitchen. Like, like nobody, you know, there's, you don't have to go through three committees um, like you do in the tech world to come up with an opinion about something. Like someone walks over to you and says, you know, you're cutting that onion wrong. And, and, you know, he described like what it was like to, um, get a lot of advice right away because there was so much he needed to learn and sort of the, you know, openness he needed to have, you know, for that, for that advice. And, and at the same time, like the community that came with this sort of like honesty and with a, a group that was so willing to be, you know, open with each other and how valuable that community was. Mm. That leads me to another question. What were some of your favorite essays that you included in the book? Well, there's so many of them. I mean, certainly I find myself returning to some of them again and again in my thoughts. So Valerie Tiberius and Melissa Koenig, they covered how humility can help you be a better friend. So, you know, every person has friends and family. So it's something that's quite applicable to any human basically of any age really so I think about that essay a lot because it, it kind of lays out how we can shift our mindset to be more like centering others as opposed to centering our own ideas about how things should go which is something that I think is um you know as pointed out in other essays it's really hard to do yeah, <laughs> it's, I, loved, yeah. I loved in that one where she said you before me when she was sharing the food. I think it was that essay. Um, yeah, that's that was, actually Ruth Nicole Brown. Yeah. But yeah, that's a wonderful thing. It's yeah. like you get tattoos that say that or something, you know, like that's that's a great way of encapsulating the mindset. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut. cut oh, no, no, no. Yeah, I love that too. Um, that That's another really fabulous essay, I think, because, you know, it really 
it's sort of poetically touches on the impact that a person who demonstrates that kind of mindset can have on, you know, others around them. How about you, Rebecca? Um, well, the one that I, I, I read to pretty frequent, frequently, I mean, we spent three years editing this book and I still, once it was published last month, I have read it twice all over again. <laughs> I know that's I amazing. It. That's really amazing. Cause you, you're like, Rebecca is the one who's read every essay the most times to begin with. I, you know, they just ground me in a, in a way. So I read, um, uh, Jen writes, um, who's a psychologist and, you know, I love some of the ways that she describes decentering yourself. Like she talks about this gravitational pull that we all feel where our own needs and our own beliefs are of course, you know, centered for us because we're aware of them all of the time, but that, um, you know, that how important it is to decenter ourselves, to become aware of other people's gravitational poles. And she talks about humility as a, a a state of being. So it's something you can travel into and out of. And, you know, that I might be in one moment, like kind of more aware of my own pull, but in another moment, I might be more aware of others and, you know, that it's a, it's a flux. So I, I, that helps me a lot to kind of remind myself of that inconsistency in a sense, and that that's a natural path of of this process. But she also describes a lot of the um, sort of attributes that people have, you know, as they're growing up that help to foster some of these qualities. So like being raised in a nurturing environment where you feel connected allows us to, you know, be more able to recognize other people's centers or gravitational pulls or the limits of our own. But she also taught, oh, I love that she talks about, you know, having experiences where we, you know, for example, encounter like the death of a loved one, things that we have no control over. And in, in recognizing that there are some things we're powerless, you know, to change, she said that's really important in developing the sense of humility because, um, you know, it, I think it's similar to what I experienced with the farmers that, you know, when you're, when the, tornado comes through and just destroys your entire crop. I mean, you can sort of sit there and be bitter about it, or you can, you know, you can sort of be angry at the tornado, I suppose, or you can, you know, accept it as something beyond your control and, you know, kind of start to move on from that because you realize that, you know, there are, there are things that are bigger than you. And I think right now during the pandemic, especially, that's really important to recognize that, you know, so many things we just don't have control over. It's a boat that's in a way the navigational system is broken. And once you kind of have accepted that, you know, then you deal with like what that means rather than kind of fighting that problem the whole way. Um, so she talks about how important it is to, you know, admit to other people you don't know things, especially to children. Um, so Jen writes is very important and helpful for me. And then the other one that I go to a lot is Rick Boothman's, who's a uh, was a lawyer who spent 20 years uh, defending hospitals from medical malpractice. And then one day realized he was kind of doing a, you know, doing a disservice to the profession and went home and said to his wife, I want, I need to change. I, I, from now on, 
I'm going to, you know, he's accepted a new job at the, as the head legal officer for a hospital. And he said, we're going to start apologizing for medical mistakes. So this essay, I read it, I've, I have read it so many times. I cry every time I read it. And um, it's so cathartic for me to see that somebody in a position of authority was able to make a change like that in their life and also was able to lead other people in making really like an ethical change, um, you know, for the better of the entire community. Servant leadership at its finest. That's incredible. You know, you touched on something with the first essay that you talked about that like when things happen outside of your control, like a death, for example, like I, my father passed away in 2019. It was my first experience with, you know, I'd had grandparents pass away that I loved, but it was my first experience of like a really pivotal human in your life passing away. And I didn't think about it until you just said it, how, how that is an exercise in humility, because there's typically an outpouring of love and support that happens, but also just the act of it happening before you realize like you are so small in the grand scheme of things. Um, it really puts things in perspective in a way that um, don't, and it's not something I wish on anybody, but most of us will experience it, right? Like if we live a, a long, healthy life and it's, it is, a humbling experience for sure. Yeah, I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, yeah, that must have been really difficult. And I can, um, I agree. I mean, I, you know, the other person that I really, this isn't in our, in our book, but I, Victor Frankl has been really an important writer to me who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, and he, he writes about, um, you know, like, so he lost his wife you know, who was killed in a, a camp during in World War II, a concentration camp. And um, and he writes a lot about um, needing to kind of like remember that like that their their relationship and um, his connection with her is sort of greater than her, you know, like her existing there with him. And he writes about what that was like for him. You know, like he was th- he, they were separated in the camps and he you know, was thinking about her. And um, at that moment, she, you know, had died and he hadn't known it. But he writes about, you know, just in that moment of having like a thought, this thought of her, like that that was, that was love and that was connection and how important that was. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I loved both of your essays in the book, I have to say. And um, Jamie, I was revisiting yours this morning and um you write about comparing libraries to museums. I never would have thought to do that. Can you share a little bit about your essay and why why you wanted to share it in the book? Sure. I mean, I guess sort of to get back to like when you asked us to introduce ourselves and how we kind of came into things like, um, or how we came into the project like librarians are very used to helping other people with their work. So it's like how I've been trained. It's like librarianship is the path that I started on when I finished school. So it's like kind of 
I'm like very um, institutionalized, <laughs> but like, you know, I think it's like this. Um, so the ethos is like, you are, um, you learn a lot about how information is structured and then one person at a time, you listen to them almost like a, like a therapist kind of to, like, to try to figure out what they want and what they're trying to do. And then you take your knowledge and try to help them figure out, you know, kind of help them figure out how they can go move forward with their project. But very rarely are you doing your own project, <laughs> you know, unless it's like, you know, in an academic context, we're actually, we're expected to do our own projects, but they're usually sort of like interrogating like the systems that we work with and things like that. So uh, when I joined this project, I was like unsure how I could contribute an essay. <laughs> like it made sense to me to think about like all the different people we could invite and all the different like aspects of like the back end of things, but I had no idea what I could contribute. <laughs> <laughs> because I was used to helping everyone else think about what they were going to contribute to things. Um, but I started to think a little bit more about, you know, that, <laughs> I guess. Um, and I had initially, when I was um, younger, I had wanted to work in an art museum. So I also had experience working in art museums and um, in the difference between museums and libraries in general. And I think it's like sort of unrecognized how much libraries are about the people that they serve. Mm. You know, I think that people think about libraries as just being about books or sometimes literacy. You know, people will, will kind of like, I think if you ask someone to like word associate, those are maybe the two words that you would get. But I think that, um, and I say this in my essay, that libraries are really about sharing, you know, and so I think that like they sort of become mirrors of their communities and if they are good libraries, I think. Um, and one thing that is really like, I think especially special about libraries is that they are about every single person who might possibly use them. Like each person gets their, gets to decide how the library works for them, which is like so the opposite of your experience when you go to a museum. <laughs> you know, like if you go to like a blockbuster show, like you're gonna line up as if you're going to the airport <laughs> and then you file through and see only the things that were selected for your view. Uh, but even in like a small museum, you know, they always have more things than they are able to display. And, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that necessarily, but I think it just sort of highlights how libraries adopt a very different approach. I loved it. And I have to say, I'm, I, I'm sure you're getting this feedback a lot. Your essay unlocked memories for me that are really special. And it unlocked the memories of, as a kid, we were in walking distance to the library and we would walk to the library at least once a week. And we, we could, my mom said we could as many books as we could carry, you know, it was okay to bring home. And those books that you would read over and over even though you knew you were sharing them, they began to feel like yours. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you'd get the same books out over and over, and sometimes you'd get other ones. Um, but I, I don't know that, I mean, as a child, I think my library card was probably my most prized possession. Mm -hmm. And that library card was my ticket to any adventure I wanted. Mm -hmm. And so it was, you know, you just really unlocked a lot of beautiful memories for me. And I love your point that the library is about sharing and that open source. Um, so that, that was a beautiful addition to the book. I'm glad that you did not stay a support. <laughs> Thanks. 
Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting to me in presenting my work at the colloquium because I had thought everyone would be super bored because <laughs> sometimes there are things that interest me that are less interesting. Like I'll test them out on my husband and he will be a little less interested in the way information is organized than I am. Um, but in reading my essay, like a earlier version of it aloud, I could see everyone sort of having similar experiences to what you just described. They're thinking about their own experiences with libraries or times when they have experienced that they could choose whatever they like. And that's so powerful. And like, when does that happen to you? I remember when I first moved to Ann Arbor, I worked at the public library then, and there was like this very big bookstore. It was, it was a borders, which doesn't exist anymore. And in some ways there were like similar populations that would spend a lot of time, like in the hanging out in either of those locations. And I think one of the coolest things about the library is that you don't have to, there's no transactional sort of like organizational setup. Like you don't have to buy anything. It's one of the only places where, yes, you, any you, like you have as much right to that institution as any other human. And I think that's so cool. Like where else do you go in your life where that's true? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, such a beautiful piece of it. And I remember like particular librarians, like the, like I had favorite librarians who I knew if there was something I wanted, they would be eager to help me and they would go above and beyond. And, uh, that, I don't know, you just brought back so many incredible memories. And I just have to shout out to Toledo's public library system because it was, I know it's still phenomenal, um, but it was definitely phenomenal when I was younger. And yeah, it makes it, it makes a difference. And I just have to have a huge plug for all of us continuing to support with our tax dollars, the library systems. Awesome. Okay. I'm curious about how you chose who was going to be a part of the book. I'm so fascinated with this process of like, how did you curate? Did you do a call for essays? How, how did you pick? I love that you use the word curate, um, but it you know comes from the arts. That's, that's how I feel. Um, as we've gone through this process, I felt as though Jamie and I became like a guide, you know, for humility in a sense, like not sort of experts ourselves, but like from my art practice, I felt like it was sort of an act of curation. And then Jamie, I felt like, um, you know, Jamie was sort of amazing because she's so good at looking across disciplines. So she would think like, you know, who's must be really humble um, ghostwriters, like, you know, and she would come up with these terrific ideas about um, places that we could we could think. So, you know, it started off with the four of us sitting down, Jamie and myself, and then Sarah Boss, who's a philosopher, and Erin Ahuvia from marketing, and um, just brainstorming. And, you know, one of us, like Sarah, would say, you know, my neighbor is a lawyer who, you know, who ended up being Rick Boothman, who did this, you know, and, and this sort of life change and that I just described, or, you know, uh, someone, yeah, so we we just, and then one person led to another, to another, and just kind of led from there. And But it was also surprising what people, you know, that we reached out to, what they chose to talk about. Like, it wasn't always what we thought they would. For example, Russ Belk, who also is comes from consumer culture, he wrote about aging, which I hadn't anticipated. And, and I think it comes a little bit from him watching his mother, who is 97, 
the time watching the experiences she was going through, you know, and like, like there's this love he has for her, which is like clear in the essay and this admiration he has for her as someone who's really smart and funny, but, you know, by some of the, the staff at the, the, um, the facility where she lives or the home where she lives, um, you know, who have this kind of like sense of like elderly people being like childlike or being not, not smart. And, um, and so he wrote this essay about, you know, about the experience of, um, of aging as either one where you really have the capacity to kind of attain a natural humility because you lose all of the sort of like props of status that like your car, or your job, that were sort of like forming your identity in slightly superficial ways. And so once you lose those, you really, you know, there's a humility with their loss, but then, and also like understanding a kind of like stronger sense of identity that's behind all of those things. But then, you know, in addition to that, there might be also humiliation with aging as if people do treat you in these kind of like infantile ways. And he talks about the difference between them. So we weren't always sure what people would write about. Um, it was sometimes a surprise to us in interesting ways. That's awesome. Yeah, and I think the last point about humility and humiliation it kind of gets to like that not all communities have um are sort of perceived by our, our culture equally. Um, and so what it means to be humble for one group of people, like a white man, for example, is different than it is for like a member of the BIPOC community, for example. So, you know, it was super important to us that voices, all sorts of voices were represented, both from like a disciplinary perspective and then from an identity perspective. So we did work hard to make sure that the, the colloquium initially and then the book had a lot of different voices in it. Um, and there's actually, there's a poem, there's one poem in the book, which is about how, like for a white man in particular, especially a white man at sort of the top of the status ladder, you know, who had gone to like vaunted institutions and things like that, that adopting a posture of humility is very easy. Um, and it almost like has no risks for him because <laughs> um, people will be like, oh, congratulations. That's awesome. Um, so like he, he can kind of like take a chip off his own shoulder, <laughs> which other people have, like without asking for it, you know, and then people are like, oh, you're like even better now, <laughs> you know? And so he, I think had been living in a world in which that was happening to him. And I, I it's kind of my perception that being invited to participate in our, our project helped him um, in some of the ways he was changing the way he was thinking about the work that he had done. You know, I think he was sort of already at this inflection point. That's my perception. I don't know him super well, having done a lot of work um, with underserved communities and the arts over time. He seemed to be like at this inflection point already. But then, you know, and being pushed to kind of think about him, his contributions to like thinking about humility, he seemed to like really go to this very introspective place, which I think you know, produce something that's really cool and a nice addition to the book to have in the book in general has like a lot of variety in terms of like the style of writing and the people who are contributing to it. Yeah, it, it really does. What else would you two like folks to know about the book or about your work in general? Well, I guess I think that the book is a really good starting point, you know, so my hope is that people will you know, seek out the book in libraries potentially um, or buy it, but that 
you know, I think that the essays in the book are not really meant to be like a roadmap. Like I think what Jen Wright points out that you go in and out of a state of humility is like very, a very accurate takeaway, you know? So I think that my hope is that people start thinking about humility, but not that they like make it the next sort of like juice cleanse, (laughs) you know, that like, it's something that, you know, I think it's important to be mindful about, but that like, um, you know, something Jen Wright said, actually, not in her essay, but in a talk that she gave recently, is that we should seek to take up the space that we are owed as humans. So some of us need to take up more space, actually, and some of us need to take up less. And I think that the book kind of, to me, the overarching feeling when you finish the book is, is that that, you know, that's kind of a message that um, humility needs a place in our lives, but it's not like we should all kind of like hide from each other or not say when we have something that we're proud of. I think that's okay when it's time for that. But there are other times when it's it's time to let someone else have the spotlight. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. I, and I think for me, one of the things I've loved about kind of watching the book in the world is um, seeing how people respond to different essays in really different ways. Um, I have one friend who started reading the book and would call me every night to tell me which essay they had read and what they thought of it. And, you know, it was fascinating to watch the ones that they responded to, like um, Troy Jollymore's about education and, you know, teaching uh, what it's like to teach young people and sort of his his hope for them that they can come to education with a sense of um, being open to what they don't know and also being open to changing their mind about things. And so this person really responded to that essay and then also to the, to the one about aging, especially. And, and I, I just have this sense of this book in a way that's changed for me since it's been published of, I feel like it's a book that you could sort of keep rereading your whole life. And every time you read it, like a different essay would make, would matter to you in a way that it maybe hadn't before just because of like whatever you happen to be going through in your life at the moment. Yeah, I would agree with that. I I can see how that will happen with this book. So the last question that we always ask on the podcast is how do you live a life of abundance? Rebecca, can we start with you? (laughs) Oh, uh, that's a, that's a, such a fascinating question. Abundance is, you know, abundance is a complicated word because I I think there's an inclination at first to think of it in terms of like a positive abundance, like a happiness abundance. But I think a lot of the things that I've been reading or thinking over the last few years, you know, are try to find meaning in all sorts of experiences, both positive and what we would have called, I guess, negative experiences that there's meaning in trauma or tragedy or challenges. And I think that's really been true for my life as well, that all of the turning points and all of the moments where sort of like the, you know, like the lights came on or the, you know, the sea parted and I could kind of see more clearly um, came about because of instances that I wouldn't have necessarily wished upon myself. And I, you know, didn't really want to experience. So I, I really feel as though I define abundance in terms of kind of like a big complicated mess in a way, like that things things can get very messy, but in the messiness of them and in those challenges, there is a clarity um, in terms of, of defining my own ethics and defining 
for me, like how I understand other people and 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 what they're willing to do in those situations. I think the thing, the one thing thread through all of that is a kind of like honesty of of speaking my own truth and um being willing to like comment on what I'm seeing. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. And Jamie, how about you? So I think on my end, I think one of the takeaways from the book is, you know, that like that it's okay to be ordinary and that like ordinariness is actually something kind of to strive for. So if you think about yourself as ordinary, then you're one of many. Um, I think if we think about like trying to live our lives where we're just focused on ourselves and kind of like perfecting that, that's like, especially in the pandemic, that can feel super lonely. You know, there's sort of like, uh, I don't know, a natural like emptiness to that. But if instead you start to sort of shift your mind so that every person that you encounter has as big a life and a big an inner life as you do, like, you know, so you go to the grocery store and every one of those people that you see, you know, with their masks on and you're avoiding each other is their life is as big as yours. Like all of a sudden the world is just overflowing with like so much. There is so much if you sort of stop thinking about yourself, I think, um, which is hard to do. <laughs> and, and there are times to think about yourself, but if we can kind of shift our perspective to like the smallness of ourselves and the bigness of of others, I think like can really be almost like overwhelming with abundance, overflowing. Thank you so much for sharing your truth today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I would love to know what you thought of today's show. Please head over to iTunes, fill in some stars and write a review. It takes about five minutes and it would mean the world. A huge thank you to our sponsor, Abby Gibb and her Media Visibility Accelerator. Thank you to Ira Sterling of Julia Sound Recording for our theme music. And thank you to my editor, Tumani Johnson of FX Media for his work on today's episode. Remember, every one of us has wisdom within. Keep sharing your words of wisdom because you never know who you'll inspire.